All right, how's everyone doing this morning? Good. Small group. Got a few people out. I know that uh, some people are sick as well. But it's good to see you all here. We are uh, continuing on in our study of uh, the doctrine of worship. And it's our ninth week so far of considering this doctrine as we continue to kind of make a snail's pace. We're going really slow. We're starting broad. We're, we're coming to uh, narrow things down more here uh, finally. Uh, but just to give you an idea, a, a reminder of our overall goal, we want to uh, talk about and study the doctrine of worship because of how central it is. Uh, in the local church, everything that we do flows out of our doctrine of worship. It's the fountainhead from which everything re- regarding community, regarding discipleship, regarding Bible studies, evangelism, everything flows out of our understanding of worship. Because that's in part why we've been called and united here together in Christ's church, is to worship and to praise His name. So it's central to our discipleship, it's central to our fulfilling of the Great Commission. Uh, Of course, in our day and age, there's so much disunity, there's so much uh, worship wars going around, so many different ideas on what the church ought to be doing in worship, uh, ought not to be doing. And and so uh, part of our purpose is to, again, identify what we believe and why, so that there's unity, understanding that if there isn't unity in our understanding of worship, There's not going to be any real unity anywhere else either. It's very hotly disputed in our day, so it's important that we understand what do we believe at Christ Reformed Baptist Church? Why do we do what we do? So we can give an answer to uh, these things and we can know what we believe and why. So what we've been doing is, again, we took a broad kind of theological perspective. Let's look at the doctrine of worship in relation to the doctrine of Scripture. Let's look at it in relation to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man. All of these big, uh, broad issues is how we started so that we can now turn and start narrowing things down, understanding that our doctrine of worship is going to flow out of our understanding of these other things. So, getting more narrowly, uh, last week we began kind of back at square one again, and we gave a very broad definition of worship. You know what the red question mark means? It means I'm throwing it to you guys. Do, does anyone remember how exactly we defined worship in this broad sense? Ascribing worth. Ascribing worth, exactly. So in this sense, worship could basically be given to anything. Ascribe worth to a video game. We were talking very broadly. We identified who it is that is called to worship. Who remembers that? Who's called to worship? God, that is. Is it just the church? All the earth, even creation. Even the Mountains and even the animals, in a sense. All people are called to worship. We talked about specifically that God's people are called especially to worship. 
but the call to worship goes out to all the earth. We talked about last week as well, um, identifying the proper object of worship in the face of counterfeits and idolatry. That's pretty obvious. God and God alone is the, to be the object of our worship. And we considered the solution to human idolatry, kind of the foundation that enables us to worship rightly. Um, the gospel in Jesus Christ regenerating our heart and redirecting our affections towards our God and Creator. That is the solution to human idolatry, and it's important to remember that as we kind of continue on. So that's what we covered last week, and I don't think there's any questions. We've got a small group today. But our plan... Go ahead. (laughs) Um, So... Here we go. Idolize, yes. You idolize worship. Absolutely. Yeah. You can idolize good things like the scripture, for example, the Bible. In fact, we'll talk about that a little bit in our sermon today because of the textual issues that come up with this with this passage. Um, we don't bow down and worship, you know, a piece of paper, a book with words on it. Um, it's the content of those words, obviously, and what they reveal. But absolutely, you could idolize worship. What, in what sense do you are you asking that though? What? Like, could you start? Could you start like spending? I mean, I'm not. I'm not criticizing this. The lesson structure. But could you spend so much time worrying about worshiping God the right way that you don't worship God anymore? Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, Particularly in the sense, I think of it in the sense of where worship becomes everything in the Christian life. And I'm talking about worship on the Lord's Day in church becomes everything and nothing else matters. Um, That seems to me like an idolatrous attempt or falling into idolatry in the sense that you know, Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we considered last week, God calls us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, that is your spiritual worship. There is a sense in which worship entails all of our lives. Obedience. Um, so that, in a sense, if, you, if you, you can idolize one particular aspect of it, because it's easy to show up on Sunday and just go through the motions... And, um, I mean, that strikes me as kind of what you're hinting at. Would you agree? Kim? You have to... I just comment. <clears throat> I mean, you can have uh, two, two different people in the same worship. Um, we can spend all this time on what's the big deal about worship and have two people walk away from it going, wow, um, God has to be feared. I need to understand worship. I want to do it right. And the other's like, yep, worship is paramount. Yeah. Same message. Yeah. Two different. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, one idolizes worship, the other is fierce. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. Yeah. When it comes down. I think the the Pharisees certainly are examples of that. And how they worship the external rather than 
paying attention to the internal. But at the same time, let's balance that with the fact that, yes, everything we do in the Christian life and everything we do in a church cer- certainly flows out of our understanding of worship. And it's a very important topic. But ultimately, it does come down to a matter of the heart. Our plan today is to, I'm going to give a more narrow definition or consideration of what worship is. Discuss the internal and external aspect of worship, which we're already hinting on, hitting on. And then begin to consider this question, is worship all of life? And is it helpful or important to make those types of distinctions? We're probably not going to get to that third point, looking at what time it is. But what is worship? Last week we saw a very broad definition, as you said, Mark, uh, ascribing worth. Worship is an expression of reverence and adoration. It's an homage, a, a public outward act of honor given to someone or something. And we talked about, of course, that worship can be directed in this sense towards anything. We can ascribe worth and give honor Towards anything. But in light of the fact that, again, we consider that worship is to be given to God alone, right? In light of the fact that because of our sin, we can tend to worship the wrong things in the wrong way, idolatry. In light of the fact that the work of Christ, the application of the Spirit in redemption, are necessary prerequisites for sinful humans to be enabled to worship rightly. Taking these three things into account, what kind of definition of worship can we now come up with? More than just ascribing worth, right? It has to be ascribing worth to God, right? It has to be ascribing worth in the right right way, towards the right object. It has to be ascribing worth flowing out of the work of Christ in the redemption in the, uh, of the, uh, the redemption of the Spirit applied to the human heart. So in this sense, I've come up with a few definitions I want you to think about. What's a more Christian definition of worship? A very, very basic one would be, from Baker Encyclopedia, an expression of reverence and adoration of the one true God. Alright, so that... That gets at the proper object of worship, right? And reverence and adoration are matters of the heart, so it's not just, you know, uh, worshiping Him in the wrong way. It's not making golden calf and claiming that you're worshiping God. So that's a, that's a helpful starting point. Bible Dictionary. The action of human beings in expressing homage to the God of Scripture because He is worthy of it, It covers such activities as adoration, thanksgiving, prayers of all kinds, the offering of sacrifice, and the making of vows. So it gets more specific here. Again, the God of Scripture is the object. Because He is worthy of it, so there's a recognition that He's worthy of it, that implies the work of the Spirit on the heart, right? In the heart. But I want to get more even more specific than this. D.A. Carson has one. How do we define worship? True worship is the proper response 
of all created beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their Creator God precisely because He is worthy. It's noteworthy about this. It is that worship is a response to God. Kind of like our call to worship, right? There's a revelation of who God is and we are to respond. And it's ascribing honor and worth to their creator God because and out of a recognition that he is worthy of it. (coughs) So I ask the question here. These are good definitions, without a doubt. But our goal is to be as specific as possible considering the things that I asked before. True God, not idolatrous, work of the Spirit. Does anybody have anything to add? Maybe something's missing from one of these definitions? When to worship? Yeah, you're, you're, you're jumping ahead a little bit. I'm not getting... <laughs> I'm not getting to that yet, but that's a good question. Um, first, we have to make a distinction between private and yeah. corporate worship. Um, but you're right, it's missing. I think it is. <coughs> if worship is all of life, then these things can kind of just happen whenever. But what I'm hitting at really is, is an explicit mention of the gospel and the spirit are not mentioned in these. And I think if you're going to have a, um, yes, Mark? It's implied, yes, but it's not explicit. And if, I think if you're going to have a true doctrine of worship, you've got, to, you've, you've got to deal, you've got to have that in your definition. <coughs> so let's talk, let's, uh, Joseph Piper here, Presbyterian minister and uh, professor, I think he is, or he used to be. Worship is a service of adoration, communion, and edification offered to God as Father through a mediator, huh, independence of the Holy Spirit, in response to the grace of God revealed in the gospel. Yeah, this gets real specific, and it's good. It, it talks about the issues of the heart. Adoration, communion, edification. And it's offered to God the Father, but through a mediator, through the work of Christ. And it's independence of the Holy Spirit, and it's in response to the grace of God revealed in the Gospel. I think I just mentioned that. It's service, it's outward, but it's more than just service because it entails communion and edification. And of course, it's in response to the work of Christ in the heart. Another one, John Miller, my co-pastor in uh, Clarksville, Covenant Baptist Church in Clarksville. He gave this definition, I love it. True worship comes from a renewed heart that sees the triune God for who He really is. And loves, adores, and cherishes, and treasures, and savors Him as our Creator, but also as our Redeemer, and responds in praise, exaltation, and actions that flow from it. 
So I think if you can mix Joseph Pipa with John Miller's here, I think you could come up with the best one. Because it's offered to God through a mediator, the power of the spirits, in response to the gospel from a renewed heart. It sees God for who He really is. That means it worships Him rightly. If you see God as, or if you form God into an idol, you worship Him wrongly. You're responding to um, your own creation of a God. But if you see Him for who He truly is, you can respond in the right way. And it's responding from heart issues. I think I get into this. Hold on. Yeah, it comes from a renewed heart. Um, but it also responds in actions as well that flow from it. So it's internal and external, which we'll talk about in a minute. So it comes from a renewed heart. Oh yeah, it's covenantal. I skipped over that. An aspect of the covenantal relationship between God and His people. True worship comes, again, from this renewed heart in which God has made a covenant with us, cleanse us from our sins, fill us with the Spirit. We see Him as He really is. It's a response to His own self-revelation. And it comes from attitudes of the heart that make themselves manifest in outward praise, exaltation, and actions of obedience. Any comments or questions on that? That's kind of true worship in the sense that we're considering it. This very narrow definition of New Testament Christian worship of the one true God. And in this, I've already hinted at it before, but it's important to note that there is an internal and an external aspect of worship. And we fall into idolatry or error if we go one way or the and neglect the other. Think about it. Internal considers uh, can, uh, entails attitudes of the heart. Love, joy, trust, sincerity, humility, reverence, seeing God for who He truly is, a response to the God as He's revealed Himself. This is the fruit of the Spirit, the work of Christ in the heart. It is the, uh, worshiping in the power of the Spirit. It is a heart matter. But the external is this public homage or reverence paid to God. It's this praise, it's exaltation, it's adoration of God with our lips, in songs, in prayer, in words. It's bowing our heads, it's raising our hands in prayer, it's listening with our ears, giving with our hands in obedience. Or, sorry, giving with our hands, uh, giving is an act of worship. Obedience with our bodies entailing the same thing. Actions in response to who God is, in obedience to His commandments, out of a heart of love towards Him. So we've got to see worship as entailing both of these. External worship, praising or singing or going to church, claiming to love God, without the proper internal worship, is what? It's hypocrisy? Formalism? You don't really care about what you're doing. You're not sincere about what you're doing. 
You're going to church to try to gain favor with God out of self-righteousness, as Kim mentioned earlier. Trying to get something from God. You are um, trying to appear as one thing before men. All sorts of reasons why people in our sin, men in our sin, humanity in our sin, is tempted to offer external worship without an internal. And this invites the particular anger and judgment of God. We see this um, with the Pharisees particularly. You clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly you are filthy, Jesus says to them. You obey the doctrines of men, and you neglect the doctrine of God, or uh, I should say the, the commandment of God, he says in Mark 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, Jesus says. So, this is the particular anger and judgment of God that comes when we offer external worship only with no internal aspect. But internal worship, worship of the heart, without the proper external expression of worship, might be a little controversial here, but it fails to be true worship. Worship, by its very definition, demands or entails an external showing of honor and worship. Glorifying God is not something that is internal. It demonstrates itself in outward actions. And that's why, really, in the Psalms, we, we see this particularly in over and over and over again, the call to worship. Sing a new song to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord holiness, honor, and worth with loud shouts, with stringed instruments. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Worship, by its very definition, is not just something that is internal alone. It has to manifest itself. And I'm going to argue as we go along, it has to manifest itself most specifically in truth. Because think about it this way, and I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Go ahead and laugh, Nathan. Too bad Trent isn't here, right? I'm jumping ahead. We're going to get to this, okay? Just give me eight more weeks, or maybe ten. <laughs> Worship entails truth. Because at the end of the day, obedience. Alright? Obedience to the law is common to all men, and it's common to all religions. Your obedience to the law is going to look the very same as a Mormon's obedience to the law. So what is distinct about Christian worship is that it is, in, it is tied in, in, in... I'm not, I'm not even going to try to say it. I, I know I can't say it right now. Um, 
I'm feeling tongue-tied. It is tied um, <laughs> in an unbreakable way. There we go. I was going to inextricably to the truth of the gospel. True worship is wedded to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. The truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the count of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as taught in the scriptures alone. True, true worship is tied to those uniquely Christian doctrines. And so yes, in, in some sense, when we obey, we are worshiping. But it fails, if I could say this, it fails to be truly worship in its most quintessential sense. So glorifying God is not just something that's internal. It demonstrates itself in outward actions. And and I'm going to argue outward actions that are wedded to the truth of the gospel. What do we mean by that? Well, we'll get to it. Yes, Nathan. Thoughts internal. Yeah. So But entailed in worship is you're paying homage ultimately um, in the context of other people and for other people to see. That's why again the Psalms again and again and again, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. <laughs> Sing to the Lord a new song. There is an aspect of Private worship, absolutely. But again, that, 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 what I'm going to argue over the next few weeks is that private worship prepares us for public worship. Because public worship is, is, the essential, is, is essentially worship. Does that make sense? There's kind of like practice and then there's the game. Put it that way. Uh, yes, public worship is the game. Private worship, in some sense, is like the practice. It prepares us in our hearts for the act of public worship. Mark? Uh, you, you made me think of uh, when David danced as the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Yes. What about it? Well, the, the way you were describing public worship, I think that would be, that's a good example. Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't dancing for himself. In some sense, he was... It, it was for himself, but it was also in the context of other people. Is that and what you're saying? To make himself look better, as, 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 you, see, as you see, like, um, his, I think it was his wife looks down on him because yep. of it. Yeah. Yeah. David? Would even prayer be included in that definition? Yes. Yeah, and, and again, <laughs> we live in a culture that emphasizes private worship over everything. And um, we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Uh, but private worship, private worship, private disciplines, private everything in regards to your relationship with God. Um, but I'm going to argue that's not what we see in the New Testament. All the commands, even to pray, uh, most of them are in the context of <coughs> you're praying with other people. It's plural. The commands are plural. You can't, you can't see that in English, but they're there in Greek. The commandments, the imperatives are all tied to one another. And it's you pray, you all. Um, there is private prayer. Jesus went off on a mountain to pray by himself. 
Without a doubt, there's private prayer. Jesus says, go into your closet, not out in the street corner, and pray because your Father sees you who pray in secret, and He will reward you. Without a doubt, there's private prayer, there's private worship. I'm just saying that the, the weight of the New Testament teaching on worship is that it takes place in a corporate context. So I don't want to seem like I'm denying private. I just want to give weight to where the New Testament gives most emphasis, and particularly because in our day we've reversed it. But this leads to this question, is worship all of life? Can every activity we do in life properly be called worship? Some people argue that. A lot of people argue that. Since we know that worship can also be done in private, then is there a difference between private and public worship? And how important is that difference? That's kind of what we're going to spend next week on. And I've already answered this. But is one more important or more foundational than the other one? And again, I preface that, more important. They're both important. Without a doubt, they're both important. They're both indispensable. They're necessary. You cannot please God without having public and private worship. But again, I want to give weight to what the New Testament places its emphasis on. And I'm going to argue it places its emphasis on public worship. Okay, so as I mentioned, we frequently see private prayer in Scripture. Private acts, like offering a sacrifice. These things are called worship. We also have some Scriptures that seem to imply that all of life is worship. I mentioned it before, Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice. He's not talking about, I don't think particularly, about public worship there. I think he's talking about both. But it seems to imply that Worship is everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever, wh- uh, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, he doesn't call that worship, and I think it's important that we note that. But you still get this all-encompassing kind of perspective that whatever you do, you are to do it to the glory of God. That's why Charles Spurgeon used to say, I'm going to go home and Smoke a cigar to the glory of God. I've always enjoyed that quote. But he understood that there's a way in which you can smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Uh, It's kind of sticking the knife into the people who said he shouldn't uh, drink or shouldn't uh, drink alcohol or smoke uh, tobacco. But it entails this idea, everything that we do, we are to do to the glory of God. Furthermore, through the Old Testament... Excuse me, although the Old Testament was centered upon a specific temple and priests and sacrifices, what do we see in the New Testament? Again, I'm trying to make the argument for worship is all of life, so then I can come back and say worship is not all of life. But this is how the argument goes, right? We saw the scriptures, living sacrifice, but then we see, okay, 
Worship is not in a specific locale, but it's in spirit and in truth. Anywhere, any place. We also see that Jesus is the new temple, the new place where God dwells in the midst of His people and through whom worship of the Father in spirit and in truth is possible. There's no locale. Jesus is the temple. We also see that the outward sacrifices in the Old Testament are described in a spiritual sense. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We have Paul in Philippians 4 saying, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the, their offerings of gift, right? That he is calling a sacrifice. So Old Testament uh, outward sacrifices are, are given kind of a spiritual bent to them. Add to all of this the emphasis on the inward, on the transformed heart, the sincere Worship in the, in the New Testament. You add all this together, and that's where we have this popular view in our day that there is no real distinction between public, excuse me, yeah, public and cor- public corporate worship in all of life. I had to throw this in there. It's also tied to the mission of the church. If social justice and transforming the culture for the kingdom is our highest calling, then without a doubt, the real work of worship happens out there, not in here. We've got to be out there changing the world. Um, and again, I'd refer you to our teaching on that a few months ago on, the, on, on those issues. I believe we are called in a very real sense to love our neighbor and to do so in very sacrificial ways, and to work in our own specific callings towards social justice and loving our neighbor uh, and all of those things. But again, as a church, if that is the church's calling, then what happens in here is not really that important. It's what happens out there. So you can see this is all tied together here. Many hold today that, if anything, private worship, being more sincere, more honest, seemingly more beneficial, is to be prioritized over corporate worship, we are t- where we are tempted to put, a name, put on a name and a face and just go through the motions. Again, this is kind of their argument here, in a sense. I really get the most out of when I have my own quiet time with God. That's where I grow as a Christian. That's what's so important. That's what we feel like. That's what I feel like oftentimes. But I don't believe that's what the New Testament teaches. But this is their argument. And we can even look at um, the Christian bestseller list. Even a lot of Reformed conservative books. Reformed even. They place all the emphasis on private spiritual disciplines. Even some of my favorite books on holiness. One of the best books written on holiness and sanctification, I think, are woefully lacking in an emphasis on corporate worship as the chief and primary way in which we grow in our grace, grow in obedience. And that's what's distinct about Reformed theology. 
in the difference between broader evangelicalism. Broader evangelicalism is constantly pushing you towards your own private spiritual disciplines. Subtly, implicitly, and explicitly. But Reformed theology is distinct about what we believe is that we believe that Christian growth happens in a community. And it happens when we come together. And that is what is most important in the Christian life. So, I want to say a couple things and we'll close. What time is it? Yeah, we've got to end. I want to note some areas of agreement, and then next week we'll break some of these down more specifically. All of life is to be lived quorum Deo, before the face of God, without a doubt. Knowing that He is there, knowing that He is watching, we are to do all things to please and glorify Him. Glorifying Him uh, entails all of what we are, everything that we do, everything that we say, before God and the watching world, without a doubt. This is indisputable. And there are things done in private that can in some sense be called worship. And that, again, these are critically important in our Christian walk. However, if everything in life is worship, then you know what? Nothing is worship. Just think about that. If everything, another way of putting it, everything is sacred, then nothing is sacred. What does it even mean for something to be sacred? What does sanctification even mean? If everything is worship, then worship can be anything and everything we want it to be. As long as our hearts are in the right place is what would be, what would be said. And that's a scary thought. I think it's scary. <laughs> Going to a football game on Sunday can now become worship. Because all of life is worship. And all that matters is if I'm devoting myself internally to the things of God. This undermines the local church. <laughs> Alright, so this is where we'll go next week. I'm going to kind of give a defense of making a distinction between public and private. I'm going to make a defense of making a distinction between what is secular and sacred and why that matters. And this will lead us, probably in two weeks or three weeks, into a discussion of what is appropriate in public worship, what isn't, and why. You have to make those distinctions first before you can even begin to come in and say, this is what our church services should look like. Because if all of life is worship, you can bring anything in you want. It doesn't matter. All right, we've got to close. Any last comments or questions before I pray? You're 19 pages from the college student. I know, I know, just like the, the article read. All right, well, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, our frailty and our dependence upon you to lead us into truth. And Lord, how difficult it can be to work through some of these things and how dependent we are upon your Spirit.
Lord, we pray that we would not listen to the teachings of men or what just seems most natural to our hearts that are so prone towards selfishness and ignorance. But Lord, truly that your word would have authority and reign in our lives and in this study. And that you would guide us into truth that is pleasing to you. And it would bring glory to you here at CRBC. Be with us now as we turn our hearts, both internally and externally, towards the worship of our great God and Creator, through our Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.